Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very pleased to have Sally McMillan on the show, and we'll be talking about her new book, Seneca Falls and the Origins of the Women's Rights Movement. We take it for granted that women can vote and serve on juries and own property and have all of the civil rights that everyone else has in our democratic republic. This is historically very unusual. In fact, the condition of women had not really changed over the entire course of human history, or at least that part of human history from the origins of civilization roughly 5,000 years ago to about 1900. And the reason it changed in our time has to do with a set of remarkable American women. And Sally tells their story in this terrific book. It's called Seneca Falls and the Origins of the Women's Rights Movement, but really it's about the entire women's rights movement in the 19th century. We live in the world they created today, so it makes perfect sense that we should go back and try to understand what they were doing. And Sally does a terrific job of telling the tale. I really enjoyed talking to her today, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Sally. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? How's the Midwest? The, the Midwest is just fine. It's, a, it's sort of rainy today in Iowa. The farmers are having trouble uh, uh, completing the harvest. You know, they can get into the field, but they can't get out. That's, that's, oh, really, okay. that's really the difficulty. How about you? Well, it's kind of it's going to be rainy today. We've got parents' weekend, so that's kind of a bummer for people who are coming in, but it'll be okay. Well, let's give it a plug. Davidson College. Davidson College. Davidson, North Carolina. That's right. I don't see any reason. I should tell our listeners that we're talking to Sally McMillan today, and we'll be talking about her new book, Seneca Falls and the Origins of the Women's Rights Movement. Uh, As I was telling Sally in the pre-interview, I was reading it actually in bed, and my wife was there, and she kept snatching it out of my hand. Uh, So it's quite a page-turner of a book. It tells a fascinating and extraordinarily significant uh, story. The women's rights movement is um, is probably the most successful uh, uh, revolution of manners to occur in um, certainly in modern history, uh, and it has vast uh, effects today on all of us. I know another book that my wife is reading is called um, Fifty uh, Fifty Parenting. Yeah, I think that, uh, I think that uh, you can draw a direct line from Seneca Falls to the book 50-50 Parenting and my wife reading it very avidly and to me. So that's good. So Sally, why don't you uh, begin by telling us a little bit about yourself, that is where you're from, where you went to school and that sort of thing. Sure. Well, I'm actually a fourth generation Californian, which is kind of unusual now to be in North Carolina, but I was born in Pasadena, California and then raised in Laguna Beach and went to Laguna Beach High School, but then I traveled 3,000 miles across the country to go to Wellesley College, which mm-hmm. was just an eye-opening and great experience for me. I just I just loved it. Um, and then married and had a couple of kids, and we lived in San Francisco. But in 1978, I think both my husband and I were a little restless and wanted something different. I'd been a librarian at a private high school in San Francisco, But we took the big step and moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, where my husband got a job. Mm -hmm. I couldn't find anything terribly appealing, and so I decided that I didn't understand the South. I was just in a strange land, and I decided it would be fun to be a high school teacher, and so I started my master's degree in history Mm -hmm. and studied Southern women because I did not understand them. And I loved everything so much. I loved studying the South that I just decided I'd go on and get a doctorate. Mm -hmm. So I got into Duke and got my doctorate from Duke in 1985 and first taught in Tennessee at Middle Tennessee State University and then in 1988 came to um, Davidson where I've been ever since. Mm -hmm. And it's just a great, I love, I love the school, I love the students. It's really fun. But in terms of my own interest in women, I've always been interested in women. And my own upbringing was 
uh, very gender inclusive. I, my brother let me play football and my father and brother let me play basketball and I never encountered any gender discrimination until I moved to the South. And that's what drew me to study women, um, because I, I began to realize, of course, that their history was extremely interesting, um, and not a lot of attention had been paid to it. Uh, female historians were just beginning to really, you know, study, study women's history. And so it was just a great field for me to move into. And so I combined my interest in the South and interest in women into really focusing on particularly 19th century Southern women. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. We have a big history or, or, or a history of uh, women's program here at the University of Iowa as well. Linda Kerber's here and some other people. And um, oh yes, I know she's yes. major. Yes, she is. <laughs> yes. She's quite major. And uh, uh, we have several other faculty members who are also very uh, esteemed in the field. So it's uh, something that is um, clear and present around here, uh, which is um, a good thing for us. I think. Did you encounter any um, resistance when you decided to go into women's history in the eighties? Uh no, I really didn't. I think you know the field was beginning to open up, and uh, in fact, Duke had a, a, a an expert in Southern women's history was teaching there, and so actually, I found it a very good thing uh-huh. because there was this growing interest in women's history. When I went out on the job market, it was just a prime time to be in this field, and both of the jobs I got. Um, they really they wanted a women's historian because they recognized this was a field of vital importance mm-hmm. and hadn't been part of you know sort of history departments for so long and there was a real commitment by the 80s certainly to to hire women's historians so mm-hmm. it was kind of like a perfect timing for me anyway to um, be in that field and to actually get a job in history because it's very hard. <laughs> yeah, I don't think people realize this, um, but uh, there are kind of fashions in history and history hiring. I know that um, I had the opposite experience because I studied Russian history and I went on the job market uh, basically immediately after the Soviet Union fell. So oh, well. <laughs> that, was, that was, didn't bode well for me, but I, I didn't know that at the time. I was happy to help the destruction of the Soviet Union along because I never was a big fan of it, but when it died, my field sort of went not exactly into decline, but into stasis. It went into the deep freeze, I guess I would say. You just, yeah, you just never know what's Yeah, never happen. know. Right. That's exactly right. One thing I also like about your story, and this is also true of mine, is that um, you know you can have several careers. We live a long time in the United States, and there are lots of opportunities to do many different things. I know that uh, I was in academia for a while, and then I left, and then I came back. Uh, and similarly, you didn't start in academia, and then you came in, and for all I know, you'll have another career. I tell my students all the time that um, – you know, you really, you really can do several different things in the, in the course of your life. If, if you're lucky enough, it is quite possible to do that. So, absolutely, I always tell my students about, you know, regarding their life as a book, and it has so many chapters, yeah, and no, you just right. never know, never know what's going to happen for sure. Yeah. Yes, I still want to write my blockbuster, uh, you know, novel. That will make millions, I think, but I haven't done that yet. Well, you can pitch that at the end of the show. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about how you came to write this particular book? Well, this was different in terms of how I got the opportunity to write this book. Uh, I'm the chair of my department, and uh, several years ago, we invited James McPherson, you know, the well-known Civil War historian who was at Princeton, he came down here to give a lecture, and as chair, I had to entertain him for a little while and was asking him about what he was working on and how many books he was writing. And so he described those, but then he said he was uh, a co-editor of a new series that Oxford University Press was engaged in um, called Pivotal Moments in American History. Each one of the books in that series was to focus on a particular moment that changed our nation's history forever. And they already had two books published. I think one was on the crash of 1929. Another one was on Brown v. Board of Education. Then he named a few others that were in the works. And after he finished this list, I looked at him and I said, well, you have nothing on women's history. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, do you have any ideas? (laughs) And I said, well, as a a start, Seneca Falls. And he said, would you be interested? And I said, yes. I mean, it was just this great opportunity because mm-hmm. this is a little out of my field in terms of what I had been researching in terms of, you know, Southern history and Southern women. But I certainly knew a lot about women's history because I've been teaching it ever since I, um, you know, got my, my doctorate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, with that, I, I, you know, worked on a proposal and it took a while to sort of fashion the book into something they, they saw that would, would work because the Pivotal Moments series 
are, are what they call trade books. These are books that are supposed to appeal to the public. They're not supposed to be laden with, you know, ideological ideas or sophisticated arguments. They're to tell a story mm-hmm. that will really create a riveting, you know, riveting exposure of a moment in time. Mm-hmm. So with that, I, I started in and began to do my research and read and read and read and did, you know, went to various libraries and, and, um, just had, I had a, I had a great time because I just, love this story and I'm such and so in awe of these incredible women mm-hmm. who really were at the heart of this 19th century movement mm-hmm. and that's really what I focused on my book is 19th century because that's my field and I didn't take it all all the way up to 1920 when the 19th amendment passed I really ended it in 1890 mm-hmm. because I wanted to make a story about these 19th century women and what they were able to achieve, but also what they weren't able to achieve in mm-hmm. that long struggle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let's tip our hats uh, to, or curtsy. I don't know what we do these days. I, uh, <laughs> tip our hats. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what we do. Shake hands. Uh, to the people at Oxford University Press uh, for commissioning this series, which is terrific, and it is uh, 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 it, it is in their trade book um, catalog and it can be purchased at bookstores all over the United States which is very nice. I think it's good that university presses are trying to get the good word out about uh, talented history writers such as yourself and oh, um, you. also uh, let's tip our hat to Professor McPherson for finding you or for you finding him. I don't know. Who's <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I don't know either but it it's was good. just one of those serendipitous moments yeah. you know that you would never imagine happening but they do happen in life so it was, yeah. it was great for me for sure. Yeah well let's tell the story itself. One of the things I was uh, very pleased about was the fact that you started the book uh, by discussing the um, condition of women in the uh, colonial period in America, and I might say more broadly, the condition of uh, women in the 18th century in Europe. And one of the things that I've noticed in my studies of gender history or history of the family or history of women is that actually the condition of women um, had not changed very much in several thousand years. <laughs> I think I can say with some confidence. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, what women's lives were like in the 18th century in the colonial period? Well, I I can actually talk about women in the colonial period and actually women's lives up through uh, really the mid-19th century. Sure, that's fine. Because um, women were not really considered citizens. They were were not allowed to vote. They could not serve on juries. Um, They could not claim custody of their own children in very rare cases of uh, divorce. They could not hold public office. They were excluded from institutions of higher learning, colleges that had opened to men. They were excluded from all the major professions in this country, such as law, medicine, um, religion. Women were just not perceived in those in those concepts. And then, in addition to that, married women, and of course most women married uh, during this time period, uh, once a woman married, she became legally what was known as a femme covert, and she was under the control of her husband. And anything she brought into the marriage, any possessions, any money, uh, land, automatically became her husband's. And if she happened to earn any money by selling hats or raising vegetables, her husband automatically um, claimed that money. So women who were married had, you know, very few rights, uh, as did most women in this country. Now, a single woman could sign contracts, whereas a married woman could not. But everything worked against women in a way. And the idea that women should be men's equals was unfathomable. And in addition, there was the idealization, certainly prevalent by the early part of the 19th century, this idealization of a woman's separate sphere, and the, the the growing concept was that a man operated in the public world. He went out to work or he went out to vote or he engaged in, in selling crops or whatever it might be. His world was the public world. And a woman's ideal world was, of course, the domestic, the, domestic arena. She was mm-hmm. to raise her children, oversee the household, and, of course, keep her husband happy. Mm-hmm. So all of that uh, worked against women, um, you know, not only not only legally but socially. That those were the prevailing ideas behind uh, women's secondary status, 
And you would find this, all of these um, ideas in, in magazines, in sermons. I mean, it was just sort of the, the concept and, and the laws that, that pervaded this, this sense of women's of, of natural oppression. It was just a natural hierarchy mm-hmm. um, in life. Mm-hmm. But what, what happens in the um, beginning in the early part of the 19th century, there are changes that do begin to affect women's lives. Uh, first of all, there's a real push to educate women. Part of this grew out of the American Revolution and the sense of this uh, great republic, uh, you know, the Republican mother, um, that she needed to be educated in order to educate her children, especially her sons. And so you begin to see the um, cre- the organiz- organizing and founding of schools, both in the North and the South, um, to to educate women, to have them, as I say, be you know the first teachers of their children, and also be able to converse with their husbands, etc. Mm-hmm. So schools begin to open up, and you know what happens to educated women? <laughs> they, <laughs> they, they, I mean, I see education as being extremely important for the women who you know were the leaders in the 19th century women's rights movement because all of them were were well educated. We also see. Um, states and uh, individuals beginning to d- uh, attack these marital property laws. The first place was Mississippi in 1839, um, but then right before the Seneca Falls Convention was held, the first Women's Rights Convention in July of 1848, both New York State and Pennsylvania uh, rid themselves of the, the restrictive marital property rights and gave women more access to their property when they, um, when they married. You also see women moving into wage work. Now, this was limited, but most, I think most significantly, you see women becoming teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, they're educated now, and states, particularly in the Northeast, were expanding their public uh, school systems, and they needed teachers. And, of course, you could pay a woman one-half to one-third of what you paid a man. So this made economic sense. But you also see women founding schools, such as Emma Willard, um, the the, the uh, Troy Female Academy, um, and so women are really engaging themselves in this whole educational movement. But other uh, women, less privileged women, but middle class farm wives are moving into textile firms, t- textile factories, and working in these factories, and for the first time earning their own wages. And this might not ex- sound that exciting today, but it was reasonably it was reasonably well paid work. Um, and also, initially, the conditions were not that horrible, not as dreadful as we envision them today. Mm-hmm. So these are just sort of reflective of the changes that begin to happen. Um, you have Elizabeth Blackwell, the first woman in this country to actually attend medical school. Mm-hmm. She she went to Geneva Medical College. They thought her application was a joke, so they admitted her, thinking she was a male. Um, but lo and behold, she shows up, and there's a female um, and in 1849, she actually, you know, graduated with a medical degree. So, you know, these are small steps, but they begin to reflect the fact that women are challenging the norms. They're, they're writing. You have a Margaret Fuller. You have um, Harriet Beecher Stowe. I mean, women who are breaking into fields that had, you know, that men had predominated. Mm-hmm. And the other issue I wanted to mention in terms of women moving out of sort of their domestic sphere is, of course, their interest in reform because the nation was looking at itself and realizing there were many problems that this country faced in terms of poverty and disease and filth and alcoholism. Um, and so women get engaged in reform movements to try to address some of these problems. And the most significant of all in terms of its relevance to the women's rights movement is um, w- female reformers involved in the anti-slavery movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was very significant. Many of them Quakers and many of the women who were initially involved in the women's rights movement came out of the anti-slavery reform movement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. Um, could you tell me uh, just a little bit about who these women uh if one can generalize in this way, um, to whom did they look as models or examples? Did, did they have a set of classical authors or did they have some sort of early modern political theorists or was their thought sort of sui generis? I always like to trace ideas back in time. Can you speak to that a little bit? Not terribly knowledgeably. Um, Certainly, they were beginning to, um, you know, they were they were reading about debates going on in state legislatures. For instance, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who is one of the 
organizers of the Seneca Falls Convention and perhaps the most intellectual of all of these, you know, 19th century women's rights leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, her father was was a lawyer and a judge, and she would apparently sit in his office and read, you know, his law journals and mm-hmm. the laws of New York State. And at least in her telling, uh, you know, while she was in her adolescence, being outraged at some of the injustices that she mm-hmm. detected in terms of how the law treated um, women. Um, these women were aware of the writings of Margaret Fuller. They were yeah. aware, you know, I mean, they they did have some grounding in uh, this sense of injustice and the sort of the rights of mankind, mm-hmm. uh, expanding it to womankind as well. But I think to me what is remarkable, yes, there was inspiration and perhaps, of, you know, a sense of equating past ideas of, you know, enlightenment ideas like John Locke mm-hmm. um, to what they didn't have. But what I find so remarkable is that these women translated what little they had uh, into this movement. And they really, you know, in terms of you mentioned the word mentors, I I don't really I I don't really sense that there were major mentors um, mm-hmm. who had stepped out of the sphere. I don't think they're looking back to Abigail Adams when she right. said to remember the ladies. You know, that wasn't a widely articulated idea at the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but more, I think, uh, relevant in terms of inspiration is. Uh, women realizing that particularly those women involved in the anti-slavery movement begin to talk, think about how they are pushing for abolition, but beginning to recognize that they are as enslaved as the slaves they're trying to free. Yeah. Yeah. No, that occurred to me as well. And you mentioned it in the book. I think that's exactly right. It's a, it's a good analogy and not a terribly unusual one, I think, in the history of liberation movements generally. So if you look, for example, at the movement for gay marriage, there. Uh, bring up um, examples like this and say that, you know, we're in the same condition as X. And actually, now that I think about it, it's sort of the uh, greatest trope for um, liberation, uh, at least in the Western experiences, of course, uh, um, um, Moses leading the uh, Hebrews out of bondage in Egypt. I'm sure that came up. Um, so uh, let me let me ask another question. Another connection here is uh, uh, the, the Quaker connection. I, my wife is a uh, Quaker was raised a Quaker, and um, I know that several of the members of this movement were Quakers and were influenced by Quakerism. I'm thinking, uh, if I can recall correctly, the Grimke sisters were Quakers, and was Stanton a Quaker or not Stanton? But uh, no, she wasn't no. a Quaker, but somebody was. Well, Lucretia Mott. Lucretia was, Mott, yes, exactly. Lucretia yes. Mott was a Quaker. Yeah, so maybe right. you can explain a little bit about the Quaker connection. Well, yes, first of all, a number of women, probably the majority of women who were involved in the early anti-slavery society, female anti-slavery societies were Quakers because raised in the Quaker faith, they believed in an inner life. They believed in human equality, no matter color, no matter gender, whatever. This is how they were raised. And Lucretia Mott was actually, she spent her early childhood on Nantucket Island. Her father was a whaling captain. And so he was gone, you know, a good part of every year, as were many other men on that island. And so she saw her mother operating, uh, you know, as the as the sole parent running the household. Mm-hmm. She ran a store. She was in charge of everything. But Lucretia also, in her own words, has said that in a way she was never aware of gender inequality because her whole life was about the equality of men and women. And so not only did she see this in her everyday life, but she saw this in her own family and families around her where men and women were were totally equal. Mm -hmm. She was given a good education. She married um, James Mott, who was a Quaker, um, and who was incredibly supportive of uh, Lucretia's uh, commitment to anti-slavery and to um, to reform, and she was very lucky to marry such a such an understanding man. Uh, Susan B. Anthony's father was a Quaker. Her mother was not. I think mm-hmm. her mother was Baptist. I can't remember. But but on uh, her father's side of the family, her father was very involved in reform and anti-slavery and interacted with a lot of the uh, of Quakers and and um, reform reform activists. Mm-hmm. Um, the five women who organized the Seneca Falls Convention in July of 1848, four of those five women were Quakers, mm-hmm. um, Lucretia and her sister Martha, um, Jane Hunt, and um, Elizabeth McClintock mm-hmm. were, the, mm-hmm. were the four of the five women. And then Elizabeth Cady Stanton was there, but Elizabeth Cady Stanton was, was not Quaker. She I was see. the only one who was not. I see. So explain to us, um, tell us the story of how they came to – form this convention or hold this convention and why in 
of all places, Seneca Falls, New York, which is not, at least today, on the beaten path, is it? No, it's not, but it should be. It should be on every woman's path, I think. It's not far off the interstate, uh, New York State <laughs> Thruway. Thruway, yeah. Well, um, it, it, you know, it's hard to absolutely determine with total accuracy when this started, but probably the inspiration for the Seneca Falls Convention actually occurred eight years earlier when the um, the British held what was called the World's Anti-Slavery Convention in London in, in uh, 1840. And so they invited um, anti-slavery activists to come to London to, you know, talk about all the issues. England had rid itself of slavery in 1833, but they certainly wanted to reach out and help other countries. And dozens of abolitionist activists uh, in the United States traveled across the Atlantic to attend this convention. Included in that number were eight women, because women, of course, had their own anti-slavery societies and were very activist in this country. So they also attended the convention, urged on probably by William Lloyd Garrison, who was one of the more radical anti-slavery leaders in this country. So they show up, and the entire first day I've read the I've read the minutes of this meeting. Mm-hmm. The entire first day of the convention was devoted to deciding whether these eight women should be allowed to participate. They had a few supporters, but the overwhelming feeling was that women should not participate in this convention. This is, you know, this is stepping, this is women stepping outside of their rightful role. So what they decided ultimately is that the women could sit behind a curtain at the back of the auditorium and listen, but not participate. One of these eight women was Lucretia Mott because she had been selected as one of the delegates. Um, but also attending the convention, she was not one of the delegates, but she had just married um, Henry Stanton, was Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And she was outraged by what these women experienced. And she and Lucretia began to talk, and they became almost instant friends. They realized they held similar ideas about the injustices that defined women's lives. Mm-hmm. And so it was perhaps at this convention, it may have been a couple years later, but we like to think at this convention that they determined that they would hold a convention in the United States to discuss women's oppression and to demand changes. So that was 1840. Well, another eight years passed because, I mean, to me, this is so typical of women's lives. I mean, reality hits and we all deal with, well, men do too, but with the realities that interfere with, you know, what we our great goals are, what we want to achieve. Um, they obviously came back to this country, and Elizabeth bore three children during that time period. Her husband was studying law so he could be certified as a, as a lawyer. Um, Lucretia had um, grandchildren. She had marriages in her family. Her mother died. So both women were busy and um, involved with other things. But in 1847, um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, her husband, and their three sons moved to Seneca Falls because Henry, I think, was perhaps tired of Boston. He worried about his health in a city. Um, Seneca Falls was located in a very um, activist area. It may not seem that way today, but many Quakers had moved to upstate New York. It was an area sort of brimming with reform. And Stanton was uh, Henry Stanton was a was a was an abolitionist, and also. Um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton's father gave them a, a free home to live in. Mm-hmm. So they moved to Seneca Falls in 1847, and um, Elizabeth was bored. I mean, she was well. First of all, she couldn't find good help for her to help her with her household, and she was no doubt a, a really truly brilliant woman, and obviously restless and. In 1848, in July 1848, Lucretia Mott comes um, to visit her sister who lives in Auburn, which is just a couple miles or a few miles from Seneca Falls. And a woman living in Waterloo, New York, which is two miles to the west of Seneca Falls, Jane Hunt decides to hold a tea party, invites Mm -hmm. Lucretia, her sister, her friend Elizabeth McClintock, and invites Elizabeth Cady Stanton. So at this tea party, these women, you know, they probably chit-chatted, but then they they begin to address uh, women's injustices, and apparently, according to Stanton's writings, this is when she unleashed all her her um, pent up feelings about women's oppression and the injustices that defined women's lives. So they decided to hold this convention almost immediately because they needed Lucretia Mott's presence. Um, Mott was extremely well known, and they realized if she were there 
and it was advertised with her presence that they would draw a crowd. Mm-hmm. So they, they, in a sense, rent, rented a Wesleyan chapel in Seneca Falls, uh, advertised in newspapers, sent out notices to other reformers, and on July 19th and 20th held this two-day convention. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, with the help of Elizabeth McClintock and perhaps others, drew up a statement called the Declaration of Rights and Sentiments, which articulated all of the injustices women faced and made demands for change. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So over 300 people attended this convention, which is just remarkable considering, you know, the fact that it had only been organized a few days earlier um, and the fact that it was about women's rights. Mm-hmm. So it, it, so really, this is sort of the first huge public, major public convention to discuss the injustices women faced and to demand changes. Mm-hmm. What happened actually and, at the uh, convention? Well, um, you know, again, we don't have we don't have all the details. Unfortunately, this is so frustrating for historians. You would like to know everything that happened, and you know, you hope that there were no, you know, video recorders or you know anybody recording anything. Um, so some of the accounts have come through women recalling it, and then newspaper accounts. But the first day was supposed to be uh, for women only. But what they did was really to take this Declaration of Rights and Sentiments and go through it and talk about all the uh, articulated injustices, and then talk about women making demands for change, such as having access to higher institute, um, institutes of higher learning, um, being able to earn fair wages and be, be paid um, equally the same as men, um, being able to be treated equally, uh, being able to have full claim to their property. Those very kinds of things that they had faced for so long became the demands that were part of this Declaration of Rights and Sentiments. But the most controversial one, and it was Elizabeth Cady Stanton who insisted that this be included, was the demand for the vote, that mm-hmm. women gain the right to suffrage. Mm-hmm. And that caused a lot of dis- uh, argument, was really the only issue that created a, a lot of um, acrimony among those who attended. But it was Frederick Douglass, the fugitive slave, who was now living in Rochester, New York, you know, he was the editor of the um, North Star newspaper. He attended this convention, and he saved the day. He stood up and basically said, I can't demand, you know, equal rights for African Americans if I'm not going to demand the same for women. Mm-hmm. And so it was sort of his support that pushed it over, and the convention ultimately uh, voted to accept the uh, Declaration of Rights and Sentiments. Mm-hmm. What were the arguments against women's suffrage? Oh, <laughs> I really, I mean, again, I mean, I think this is an important question because for many of us, we can't sure. even imagine what they would we do. Can't, exactly. And when you read some of these comments that men were making, you just, you don't know whether to laugh or shudder. But, um, well, of course, first of all, there was an assumption that women's brains couldn't handle the, um, you know, what would be demanded of them in order to vote and make these, make these choices. There was real fear that if women voted, of course, this would be the end of marriage because they would disagree with their husbands and disharmony would reign mm-hmm. and that would be very threatening. Men also argued that the, the whole environment of voting was a very male environment. And actually, it was often, you know, chaotic and there was you know liquor was flowing and you would vote in a stable or a bar saloon or something um and so you know sort of like this is not this is not women's um sphere so there were i mean there were just endless arguments against this idea that that women should vote uh, women should not vote you know this is this is not female there this is going to uh, remove their delicate natures mm-hmm. that women are too feminine to um, be able to handle the, you know, the bustle and the demands of these partisan mm-hmm. um, campaigns, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, and those, and those arguments went on and on and on. I mm-hmm. mean, they did not end in the 19th century. Yeah. You find men in Congress articulating some of these same concerns. Mm-hmm. I know this was an argument, the argument about uh, injuring or damaging the, uh, Delicate female constitution was an argument made uh, throughout, actually, the 20th century against allowing women to go to college. College was going to damage oh. them. Yeah, this is very, very common. But I think it's important to say, yeah. and, and again, maybe I'm wrong about this, I don't know, that these arguments were made in good faith. They were not uh, people who were just uh, sort of cooking these things up uh, in, in order to uh, 
uh, continue the uh, oppression of women. Am I wrong about that? Or no, I think I think that's well. I would say some of them did. I mean, it, in a sense, they did want to oppress women because they couldn't imagine women being their equals. Mm-hmm. Um, and voting certainly would put them on an equal basis with men. And also. I think it was Sojourner Truth who made this wonderful statement about how, you know, when when people have power, they don't want to give up mm-hmm. or share that power with others. So certainly, I think in the back of some men's minds was this idea that if women now voted, you know, there was there was no telling what happened would happen to their own power because you would be sharing, you know, this this you know the control that men had politically. Well, they weren't. Uh, it, it's funny because they weren't wrong about that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely that's, not. That's I mean, we know how we know how candidates today go after the female vote, you know, and more yeah. women vote than men. So it's yeah. uh, it's Ugh. extremely yeah. yes, it's extremely important. Yeah. So, um, but in a way, I think what what you're saying has some truth to it, and that is that the ideas about women were so pervasive, you know, so much the norm about women's delicacy and women's uh, secondary status to men and, you know, uh, you know, overwhelming women with too many intellectual or partisan thoughts. You know, I do think there was was some sense that this was indeed uh, the thinking of the time. Yeah, no, I I think it's always important. I I always have difficulty explaining to my students how right thinking people in the past could think things that we couldn't imagine and actually believe them. Uh, and and uh, I, I know this is a, a, a real struggle in, in, in my teaching. I don't know about yours, but this is another instance where, yes. you know, it's really hard to put yourself in the shoes of uh, a slaver who argues that slavery is good for African-Americans or someone who opposes women's suffrage saying that, you know, actually it is for their own good. And to be not exactly sympathetic to them, that might be too much, but at least to try to understand their world and the principles that um, informed it. This is a very difficult thing for for many people to do. Absolutely, and it's uh, well. I think we, you know, we call it pres- presentist thinking. Yeah. And you know, for instance, in dealing with the women's rights movement after um, the Civil War, which is again another part of my book, um, women like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and to a lesser degree Susan B. Anthony uttered incredibly racist comments. Yeah, they no. were, you know, they were losing out after yeah. the Civil War with the passage of the 14th Amendment, which gave citizenship to men, and the 15th Amendment, which gave black men the right to vote. Yeah. You know, these women were outraged, um, you know, so upset that they lost out to men who recently emerged from slavery and in many, many, many cases, the majority of cases, were were uneducated. Mm -hmm. And so you read these comments that they made, particularly, for instance, when they went to Kansas to petition that state to give women suffrage. Um, You know, you really cringe at their their racist comments. Yeah, yeah. No, that is really... Yeah, but but it's like that, you know, what they were uttering is as horrible as it is today... And there were objections at the time, but nevertheless, a lot of people felt that way. Yeah, no, I think that's a, it's an extraordinarily uh, useful tool in explaining to people exactly how these worldviews are sort of hermetically uh, sealed off from us. That is, since they're not consistent in the way that ours are. You know, if you read Lincoln, is a terrific example because you know mm-hmm, he said right. that, you know he's not the things that you find on the Lincoln Monument, but he said other things about the uh, mental dispositions of African Americans, things that are not widely quoted. But in fact, um, he, he I'm sure he genuinely believed uh, that you know they needed the tutelage of the white race and these other sorts of things. And there you know legion examples like this. I interviewed a fellow who wrote a terrific book about the progressive movement and the. Uh, uh, late 19th, early 20th century in America. Uh, and, you know, he points out that while they were very progressive in many ways, um, or actually it was the populist movement, that they were very progressive in many ways, their attitudes on race, just as you point out, were uh, retro, absolutely retrograde from our, oh, yeah. um, from our perspective. Yeah. And so, you know, the, these, are, uh, these, these are important examples of how the, the past, you know, our heroes in the past are not as consistent as we would like them to be. <laughs> no, they're they're just human. Yeah, and exactly. You know, we all we all have flaws and we all have shortcomings. Yeah, um, no, that's exactly right. And certainly, and you know, certainly some of these these women did as well. Yeah. But to yeah. me, they're still heroines. Yeah, well, certainly. You yeah, have to I mean, deal with this. No, that's yeah. right. Well, it's a little bit like it's one of my favorite quotes. Is a, I don't know if it's a quote, but it's about Winston Churchill. He was wrong about everything except one thing, and it was the important thing. So <laughs> <laughs> I think that's pretty much right. So the, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, the uh, the Declaration um, 
of sentiments, uh, which is a very interesting document rhetorically. Uh, who wrote it and what did it say? Well, there again, there's some, you know, some, I don't want to say dispute over who actually wrote it. Um, certainly Elizabeth Cady Stanton made it seem as if she did it. There's no doubt that she had some help. Now, whether it was Mac Elizabeth McClintock, who was one of these five women who helped organize the um, Seneca Falls Convention, um, I mean, it's likely she had some, some input. There's also a suggestion that uh, I think it was Jane Hunt's husband who walked by said, you know, you need to hold this convention and sort of prompted them on. And perhaps um, Henry Stanton had some input into helping Elizabeth carve out some of these um, arguments because of his being a lawyer and knew the law and that kind of thing. But um, I guess Stanton probably gets the most credit. The most, you know, the most wonderful statement uh, that that they made, and they based, they based the Declaration of Rights and Sentiments on the Declaration of Independence. They were looking for a model that would resonate, and, you know, it's like, well, what better, what better document? So one of the great, uh, you know, opening lines in this, uh, in this declaration is, um, we hold these truths to be self-evident, mm -hmm. that all men and women are created equal. Mm -hmm. And then they really lined up in a way, or organized the declaration to parallel the Declaration of Independence by yeah, yeah. pointing out where women have faced all of the injustices. And, of course, rather than blaming King George III, yeah. they blamed men. <laughs> it is. It is. I suggest that and you can read it. You can find it online lots of places. I suggest people read it because it is rhetorically brilliant. You and know, it's also it has, at the end of my book. Yeah, it has yeah. all that. It has, yeah, exactly. I'm sorry. It has all of the, uh, it has all the little rhetorical ploys that the uh, Declaration of Independence has, um, but it, it twists them just a little bit for its own purposes and, you know, as a model of, of how to kind of um, use an established uh, – form for a different purpose. I don't think you could find a better one. You know, it has when in the course of human events and, uh, you know, tries right. to be self -evident. It has all of these what are now to us cliches, but they're turned in a little bit, like a kind of an interesting way. So it really does grab your attention. You realize you've seen it before, that it's somewhere in your consciousness, but it's not saying what you want it to say. You know, <laughs> so I, I was reading it. I was just, thought, I thought this is just an absolutely, absolutely genius. Um, so the, um, so uh, 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 the, the declaration was adopted, and then uh, the uh, it, uh, it was very hot in July, and they, they talked for three days. And then what happened? Well, actually, two weeks later, a women's rights convention was held in Rochester, New York, which was you know, only two hours away by train. And, and um, well, actually, I should say two hours now by car, uh, probably longer then. But um, the, some of the women who had attended the Seneca Falls Convention were so excited about what had transpired that they decided to hold a convention immediately in their city. And while it didn't draw nearly as many people, um, nevertheless, it was sort of a an indication that something had started that was just too exciting to, to let go. Um, so they hold this, this convention. And then, um, you know, in the meantime, of course, there are, you know, women are beginning to hold, you know, meetings and, you know, and talks and discussions about women's rights. Um, and what we see happening in 1850 was probably another, really another significant moment, and that is holding the first national women's rights convention. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, unlike Seneca Falls, which really drew from the immediate area, um, the the convention that was held, this first national convention held in Worcester, Massachusetts, um, drew um, hundreds of people um, from nine different states. Mm -hmm. And so this was sort of a real accomplishment. And from that point forward, the women who were so beginning to be so involved in this movement um, hold a national women's rights convention every year up until the, until the uh, Civil War, except I think it was 1857. Um, so they're they're seeing this as a national movement um, and really trying to take up, you know, many of the cries they would have. For instance, women would form committees and then they would look at various issues like women's wages, which, of course, were incredibly lower than men. Um, they would look at different um, op options and opportunities in uh, professions and in occupations for women. They would, um, you know, they would just address various issues and discuss them at these um, two to three day conventions mm -hmm. that were held in various um, places throughout the Northeast. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then how did they fare during the war? 
Um, well, during the war, um, they what they decided, I think Susan B. Anthony was the only one who really objected, but they really realized that the war was more important, that they needed to sort of subsume their own concerns about, you know, women's oppression and inequality for the Union war effort um, and also to push for anti-slavery. Mm-hmm. And so that's what they did, and they formed an organization to help women organize and they help support um, the U.S. Sanitary Commission and, you know, you know, things like making bandages and nursing and raising money to help support the war effort, um, continuing to um, engage in petition um, petition campaigns to encourage Congress to um, pass a, an, an amendment to the Constitution to end slavery forever, putting pressure on President Lincoln, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So they really forego their own concerns with the idea, I think, in the back of all of their heads that after the Civil War might end, whenever that would be, that they could then pick up and start again mm-hmm. and really push to get um, women's rights back on the national agenda. Mm-hmm. I see. So it was a sort of time out while they aided the uh, the, the war effort. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. Then, I mean, and then, yeah. and then immediately after the war, not immediately after the war, but several years, I don't remember how many, there's a split in the um, in the movement. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yes. In 1869, uh, the movement split. And some of this had to do with sort of growing, well, growing issues that began to separate women. You know, they had they had different agendas in terms of how they wanted to um, move ahead on this on this push for suffrage. Uh, whether they wanted to push for many reforms or just really push for the vote, how they wanted to achieve that. But more importantly was this uh, this huge debate over the 14th and 15th Amendments. Mm-hmm. And some um, some women and some men who were involved in the women's rights movement really felt that this was this was as Wendell Phillips said this is the Negro's hour. In other words, slavery has existed so long that this nation really needs to um, give give um, African American males these rights and the right to vote, um, and that women's suffrage would come. Um, whereas Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony were just furious, mm-hmm. absolutely irate. And they were also getting criticism because of some of their sort of racist remarks that they had uttered in Kansas. And so Stanton and Anthony sort of leave the movement. They trounce out. They, they, they leave and they form their own organization called the National Women's Suffrage Association. Mm-hmm. And several months later, Lucy Stone, uh, Julia Ward Howe, and Lucy's husband, um, Henry Blackwell, who are now in Boston, form the American Women's Suffrage Association. Mm-hmm. So you have a split in the movement and you have what I you know what is an effort by both associations to push ahead on women's suffrage and women's rights um, one sort of concentrating more on state state efforts and one more on national efforts but they're both working for the same thing although I found, to me they wasted a lot of energy getting upset with one another mm-hmm. <laughs> arguing with one another and so there was a lot of sort of personal acrimony during this time period. For instance, Susan B. Anthony and Lucy Stone had had a very, very close friendship. And during this time period, I mean, some of the things they write about each other are not not pleasant to read. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But finally in 1890, you know, with a new generation of women, um, younger women getting involved in this movement, um, and these women, of course, becoming older. By then, uh, Lucy Stone had died. Lucretia Mott had died. Um, you see the unification of these two organizations in 1890 to create the National American Women's Suffrage Association. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, sometimes it takes, uh, this is something that's in my mind a lot recently, sometimes it takes the passing of a generation in order to move things forward. I, I, I really I really think that's true. It's very, one of the hardest things in the world is to convince anyone of anything. <laughs> so unless bad. they agree, unless they agree with you, well, right? If they agree with you, then you need to convince them. But you know, then if they die, then you don't have to convince them. I mean, well, you know, well it's, that's it's, true. It's like a little bit, you know, it's, it's again to go back to the uh, sort of gay marriage or, or, or equal rights for mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. Um, for uh, uh, for uh, homosexuals and lesbians. And and uh, you know, I have a friend who who, who says, well, it, it's just simply a whole generation of people is going to have to pass on before uh, this comes. And I, you know, again, I'm from the Midwest, and I sort of. Uh, not exactly progressive views, and I think that's largely true. There's very little that you could say to my 
uh, mother um, of blessed memory that would have uh, convinced her that gay marriage might be a good thing. Although she was a mm-hmm. very well-meaning person and totally in favor of equal rights for everyone and completely you know, democratic in spirit and so on and so forth. She just uh, couldn't wrap her mind around that. And I, I think that that's also true about issues like women's suffrage, that it, it really does mm-hmm. take uh, generations to move people in that direction. Um, roughly 1890 is when your book ends, but it, it seems uh, uh, completely appropriate to ask you to uh, kind of com- complete the story is the wrong word, but bring us to the moment um, where women actually get the vote. Well, of course, that's a very complicated story, and um, I just try to in a sense, summarize it because um, I didn't want to lose a, lose the focus on the 19th sure. century. But yeah, the National American Women's uh, Suffrage Association uh, moves forward um, primarily under the leadership of uh, Carrie Chapman Catt and Anna Shaw. And again, ups and downs. It was it was not just an upward trajectory to uh, get the vote. Many many hurdles they they confronted. But in the meantime, of course, um, states are beginning to give women universal suffrage. Yeah. Um, primarily out west, the first place was, of course, the Wyoming Territory. Wyoming. And then Utah. <laughs> yes, and then Utah Territory. Um, but when Wyoming became a state, um, it was the first state to give women universal suffrage. But several other western states followed suit. So that by the time, uh, well, by 1910, there were a number of western states where women were actually voting and voting for president and beginning to have an impact. Um, but it's a complicated story, and it you know it involves in another rival women's rights organization called the Women's Party, led by Alice Paul, who was far more radical, and she had been in England and you know sort of mimicked the pank pankers uh, who were you know chaining themselves to fences and demanding women's rights and going on hunger strikes and very dramatic stuff. But um, these women just, I mean, they were relentless. They just kept working, and they became more political. They began to use modern technology like motion pictures, and they had these huge uh, uh, suffrage parades. I'm sure everyone's seen wonderful pictures of these women with these, you know, banners and everything marching down Fifth Avenue. Um, so they just kept working. And then I think uh, part of it was women's involvement in World War One had an impact because they did indeed make a difference. Uh, convincing Woodrow Wilson, who, as we know, was a Virginian, a Southern man, was not excited about women's suffrage initially, but he actually changed his mind and saw that this was, uh, in a way, a moral imperative. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, gradually men began to realize that, that you know, women, uh, they absorbed the idea that women should be citizens, that mm-hmm. women are half this population. And mm-hmm. We are a supposedly democratic country. Right. I mean, we know that's not totally true, but nevertheless, we espouse those ideals, and to keep half the population outside of the political process was simply wrong. So, mm-hmm. you know, finally, um, the suffrage amendment passed through the House, passed through the Senate, and then went out to the states uh, where three-quarters of them had to ratify it, and mm-hmm. that finally happened mm-hmm. in 1920, Tennessee being the last state. Mm-hmm. As Wy- it, yeah, I was going to say, as Wyoming goes, so goes the nation. <laughs> right. <laughs> you don't hear that very well, often. Well, how about Iowa? No, you're right. Right. We, <laughs> no. Iowa, we have gay marriage in Iowa. You know, That's right. We do. We do. So we as do. Iowa do. goes, so goes the nation. Well, you know, and I was thinking when you were talking about gay stuff and, you know, and all that issue. And, and my mother, my grandmother, of course, born and raised in Des Moines, Iowa, um, you know, she couldn't fathom the idea of uh, of my marrying a Catholic, oh, which yeah, I did. No, I, <laughs> you know, it was the same back. You know, it was really she was raised to think that Catholics were, you know. Yeah. Oh no. I. I from, yeah. yeah. No. I. I you know. Thing. My. And, and you know. Again, it's, it's sort of. Not, I, I don't. I won't. I won't speak for you, but it's sort of been interesting for me as a historian to get a little bit older, um, because I, I can remember things that have now passed completely. You know, my father in Kansas used to use the N word in free flowing speech. As if it had no significance whatsoever. Right. You know, that it was just the way people talked. Uh, yes. And uh, that's gone. <laughs> that's over. Right. That's right. You know, yeah. and and I'm a kind of co I'm a kind of I am a co-equal parent with my wife. You know, I change diapers and get them in the middle of the night and do all these other things. And you know, uh, the, the people of my father's generation, men of my father's generation, did not do those things, as far as I know. I, I would love to be proven wrong, and somebody will probably send me an email. But you know, <laughs> things are changing right before our eyes, and oh, they we just, are. We just thank have heaven. to kind of look at it. Yeah, thank heaven is right. No, and right. they're changing in a nice in a, in a nice direction. I like the incrementalism of it all, though. I really do. This is as some somebody who uh, studied uh, Russia for many, many years, and I know that uh, things did not happen in an incremental way there, and they uh, ended up in a disastrous fashion. I think that, uh, you know, again, that 
that there is really something to this laboratory of democracy business with the states because the states usually right. lead. And, and that is a, a wonderful system that we have. And it really is as Wyoming goes, so goes the nation, as why Iowa goes, so goes the nation, because <laughs> we can try these things out. And, uh, right. you know, it turns out they're not as scary as we uh, thought they were. No, of course not. L- let me ask you, let me ask you just a, a, what is a, a, a ridiculous question. Um, uh, the, the, what, what is the legacy of the women's rights movement today? There you, you know go. That, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, the legacy is huge because women wouldn't be where they are today without these women. Um, but I must say, actually, I was just trying to write this uh, sort of brief uh, editorial column for HNET uh-huh. um, because I've been struck recently in this past week. Maria Shriver has been on all the talk shows with this report called The Woman's Nation Changes Everything. Uh-huh. And it's all about where women are today and their status. And But then, of course, you know, addressing some of the problems where women still face, you know, enormous odds. Yeah. Um, and I, and I haven't read the whole report, but I did go online to look at it. And I thought, there's not any history in this. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's and what I find to, is really too bad is I think women are less interested in their history today. Mm-hmm. And to me, I've always, one of the things I love about history is that by understanding a place, you know, understanding what happened, you you learn so much about yourself. And I think uh, women, you know, the legacy is there. I just wish it were more prominent. Mm-hmm. We have women's studies. We have women's history. Um, but I, at least I'm finding where I teach, there's not as much interest in it as there was, say, mm-hmm. 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really too bad. I think that we must we mustn't forget these incredible, indomitable women who just went through so much. I mean, they didn't give up, and they were faced enormous challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a huge legacy, because we wouldn't be where we are today without their having done what they did. Mm-hmm. But I also wish their story were better known. Yeah. So, and of I course, th- I want everybody to go out and buy my book well, so that they will <laughs> know about them. I'm sure that they will. And also, I mean, I know that in my own life, I mean, I guess this is applied history, because the things that they started we are still working out. I know that yes. I mentioned again my wife reading this book, uh, 50-50 Parenting or Getting to 50-50. I hope I hear from the authors. Uh, <laughs> that, um, I've, mentioned, I've plugged the book several times. You know, th- this is um, you know, something that th- these women started in the 19th century. And, you know, one of the things we're trying to work out now is uh, women entering the workforce in the 1950s and 1960s. Uh, you know, now women make up uh, 50% of the workforce, roughly, uh, and women have careers just as men always did. And then there's the issue of child raising. All of these things are still being worked out. They're they're not at all settled. And, and uh, no. you know, it's it's a it's a very you know we we really live in historic times in terms of gender relations. We we may not realize it, but we really do because there is no. You know, again, people look for models for how they should behave, and I have none for how I should behave. I don't know how to be a father in the way that I have to be a father today. I really don't, because I people because the men of my father's generation did not raise children. They right. did they did something else. I don't know what they did, but but they did not raise children, and I'm raising kids. Uh, and it's a, it's a very you know, and I I think about the, these these women and how we're really working out the processes that the logical kind of conclusions of the processes that they started. And I think that's all for the good, but there's, there's a lot of work to be done. And I think we can look back on their contributions and say, you know, that this is really, you know, due to their work that we are able to do these things. I mean, my wife is a professor of mathematics and, you know, has a rich and, and uh, a varied career. And we also have children. We have all these things. And, uh, but you know, they, they, uh, they, they, they set us they set us a kind of a task. I guess I'd put it that way, a kind of a challenge, like try to do this for the first time in world history. Mm-hmm. You know, try to make yeah. the, the sexes equal. Try to make the genders equal. And, and no one has ever done it. And uh, it, it's really, you know, it's really, it's really something that's. Um, I, I guess I'm I guess I'm proud to be contributing. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> no, I haven't really thought about it. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time uh, talking about this terrific book that I hope everybody reads. The book, again, is called Seneca Falls and the Origins of the Women's Rights Movement. Um, Sally, why don't uh, we close with our traditional question here on New Books in History, and that is, what is your next project? What are you working on now? Well, actually, at the moment, but I'll soon be finished, is uh, updating a uh, book of readings and documents on um, – on the South, um, it's uh, it's something that's put out every few years, and so I'm updating that. But um, more importantly, I I want to 
I really want to get into um, Southern women's education. I've been doing some work in that field, particularly antebellum women, because I think everybody assumes that in the South, you know, women didn't have access to really fine education, and that's simply not true. But in the research I've done so far, I've I've found the one of the most interesting things is to find out the role of um, various denominations and. Mm-hmm you know, how they really were prominent in the, um, you know, in this, what is really an education movement in the in the South. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing that I, I have in the back of my head, and in fact, I wanted to see if any publisher might be interested. <laughs> I would love, I would love to write a biography of Lucy Stone. Uh, one of my, um, I, my book is based on four heroines, and um, Lucy Stone is one of my heroines, and there are biographies of her, but I'd love to do a new one that is very readable and accessible because, I think she is often forgotten in the women's rights movement. We know we know Susan B. Anthony. I think some people know Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Mm-hmm. But Lucy Stone was every bit as important mm-hmm. and I wanna I wanna make her <laughs> mm-hmm. into a major heroine when mm-hmm. we look at this story. Mm-hmm. Well I know that there are so publishers. That's what I'm up to. I know well, there are publishers that listen to this and I know there are uh, <laughs> agents that listen to this show and uh you know, uh, your uh email and contact information will be on the New Books in History website together with a, a link to the book so that you can buy the book, Seneca Falls and the Origins of the Women's Rights Movement by Sally McMillan. Sally, uh, I've really enjoyed talking to you today. I really have. It's been fun. Marshall, it's been my pleasure. Okay. Thank you so much. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Sally McMillan, the author of Seneca Falls and the Origins of the Women's Rights Movement. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. Thank you.